Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. But I warn you, today I'm going to be grumpy. Grumpy about a lot of things. Um, first and foremost, I'm grumpy with our editors. <clears throat> I mentioned before that I've had quite a bit of frustration with our textbook, The Philosophy of Erotic Love, and I don't think there's any reading that in our textbook besides possibly the symposium reading that I legitimately did not include uh, that makes me quite so grumpy as the one on Rousseau. Like, don't get me wrong, I think Rousseau is an important philosopher, and I think he's very relevant to the discussion in this course, but the fact that somehow in, like, eight pages they managed to include three different excerpts from three different books... Uh, I just... Uh, I'm so frustrated. Um, like... In general, when I am trying to put a curriculum together, in general, when I'm trying to teach a class, I try and include as much context as possible, obviously, because based on all of the history that I have been teaching, um, in addition to the various philosophy here, as well as, like, throwing in the occasional work of literature, like, I want you to very much be informed about everything that is going on, as much as we can possibly cram into a one-semester class that is covering literally the entire history of philosophy, at least as regards, you know, the subject of love and friendship, you know, but part of doing context is placing the philosopher in their own context. Like, I prefer long excerpts to short excerpts, um, and as much as I do like this survey style of course, and as much as I'm, you know, trying to make this work, it's really freaking difficult to give you a good sense of what each philosopher is saying when we only have, you know, a day or half a day to talk about that philosopher. Um, so, you know, most of the time I've tried to stick to, you know, one philosopher per day if possible, or, you know, if in fact we're dealing with multiple philosophers, try and give you as much of what they are offering as possible. Um, and our textbook is frequently frustrating my efforts there. Like, by contrast to me preferring those, those big long excerpts, again, as I said at the very beginning of class, like, our textbook only devotes the first quarter of its contents to the actual business of, you know, the history of philosophy, at least up until, like, 19 or 1850, which is tough. You know, 150 pages is not enough to cover the entire history of philosophy up until 1850, no matter what the subject is. So, you know, that's why I cut the symposium uh, excerpt from, from the textbook and instead just made you read the symposium. Um, and... With Rousseau, it's a bit of a different story. Like, I know the symposium like the back of my hand. I spent an entire semester working on translating it um, directly from the Greek into English. So I'm, I'm really familiar with it, like deeply familiar with it. I still have all my textbooks from when I was working on that project, um, and I consulted them periodically when, when I was sort of re-researching the symposium and trying to familiarize myself with the text. Um, but that's not always the case. Like, I should stress, you know, I... I don't have a PhD in philosophy, and even if I did have a PhD in philosophy, typically when you are studying philosophy that extensively, you get more familiar with a few writers than you are with the whole sort of sweep of history of philosophy. Like, if anything, I'm a bit of an outlier insofar as I have gone so far out of my way to study literature and to study, you know, semiotics and to study history and to study a little bit of sociology here and there. Like, 
the fact that I am well-rounded is, I think, something that equips me better for these sorts of classes, these sorts of survey classes, but at the same time, it also makes me less of a scholar um, from the perspective of, like, higher academia. Like, typically, academia doesn't train generalists. It trains specialists. It wants you to know a few things really well, or a specific time period really well, or it wants you to know all of the literature surrounding a particular writer or a particular text. Um, that constitutes, you know, proper scholarship as far as it's concerned. Which means that any time that an academic who is trained to be a specialist tries to teach something that is more generalized, like a giant survey course, whether it's, you know, a sweeping history of philosophy or, you know, a, a kind of Western Civ-style humanities course, like, oftentimes they're going to run across things that they just haven't encountered before. Um, there are lots of readings in the erotic love textbook, for example, that, you know, it was the first time I was reading some of that stuff. Like some of the stuff that we've taught in this class, like Theano's Letter on Mar Marriage and Fidelity, or um, the Letters of Heloise and Abelard, which admittedly we didn't read, or Milton's Essay on Marriage and Divorce that we talked about last time. Like, all of these are texts that I had not read before I started studying this class. Um, and every single scholar I've ever met, whether they are, you know, full PhD, full professor, the whole shebang, or whether they're fellow master's graduates like me, or if they're undergraduates who are just especially well-read, everyone has blind spots. And Rousseau is one of mine. Um, and it's weird that Rousseau is one of mine. Like, I... <laughs> My relationship to Rousseau is probably one of the strangest in all of my academic pursuits, because on the one hand, I grew up with Rousseau. Um, my mother was a French teacher at the high school level, and when she was in college, um, her specialty was Rousseau and the philosophes, Montesquieu, Voltaire, um, the rest of that crowd. And as a consequence, like... My mom raised me with the principles of the Emile in mind. Like, Rousseau was very much sort of one of her guiding stars in, in the development of, of, you know, her behavior as a mother and her behavior as a teacher. Like, this was all one and the same thing to her. Um, and she has always, always talked to me about how awesome she thinks Rousseau is. Um, to the point that, like, when I told her that I was actually, you know, studying Rousseau for the first time ever in order to prepare for this class, she got really excited. And, you know, I even told her that she should, like, actually track down some, some copies of Rousseau, preferably something that is, you know, a little friendly to both French and English, because I have a decent amount of French, but I don't feel terribly comfortable reading in French, especially when I'm on a time frame. Um, I told her, you know, by all means, help me. Like, Teach me. Tell, me. tell me what I need to know about Rousseau. Um, because, again, up until now, like, literally after a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees, I had never had occasion to read him. Um, and this, again, like, like we've talked about, you know, scholars and philosophers fall in and out of fashion. It's a thing. Um, as much as we've been emphasizing, you know, we need to understand the history of these ideas, we need to see how, you know, one idea leads to another idea leads to another idea, and in general, academia is very attentive to that sort of thing. Academia also tends to, you know, get really excited about some thinkers and then let other thinkers sort of go by the wayside. Um, they tend to emphasize certain strains of thought as being super important, and then other strains of thought which used to be important, they no longer consider important. 
Um, like, as much as everybody in the 19th century was thrilled, absolutely over the moon, about the thinking of Schiller, I have never heard anyone talk about Schiller outside of those writings. Like, these things come and go. Um, and I think in the 20th century and the 21st century, academia has kind of very much gotten over the philosophs. Um, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's because I'm not studying enough French philosophy. I, do, I did notice that one of the most recent scholars who did, in fact, talk about Rousseau was Derrida, so I wouldn't be surprised if the contemporary French school is considerably better acquainted than we Americans and our analytic tradition um, with the work of the philosophes, and Rousseau especially. Um, but it's worth noting that nobody thought this was important to teach me, um, and I didn't think it was important enough to rectify it, and now I'm hurting for it. Especially because we now have this confluence of inconvenient events. On the one hand, we have a textbook that is throwing three random like excerpts of Rousseau, all small and not very useful for context, and I don't have any way to correct them. Uh, like, up until this point, I have kind of vetted every single one of the excerpts that we've read for this class. Like, I know what, what else is in Aquinas, so I didn't have to 100% rely on our textbook, though I definitely favor it for sheer convenience's sake. Um, likewise, you know, when I saw the, the excerpt from the symposium, I knew that wasn't going to fly with me, so I just got rid of it and used a different excerpt and used the entire text instead. Um, when I read Spinoza, I mentioned how frustrated I was with the, the sort of excerpting that's going on there, the fact that you don't get the context of, book, of uh, books one and two, but I knew enough to be able to lecture on it and be able to sort of talk to you. You know, this is, this is what, what Spinoza is doing in the early part of his book, and therefore this is the context that you need to understand the later part. Perhaps the best example is when I created our Augustine reading. Like, we get a little chunk of the City of God in our textbook, like five pages, and it's fine. But it also seemed to me to be completely unrepresentative of Augustine's actual thought on the subject of love and friendship. Namely, he has a lot to say in the Confessions, as we saw about love and friendship, that does not come up. Um, in his the little five-page City of God excerpt. Like, yes, we do see some heavy-duty stoicism strains there, and we do see sort of the foundation of the Catholic teaching that, you know, pleasure and sexuality is absolutely forbidden, which is important in its own right, for sure. But I definitely wanted to get it more than that, and I knew what to look for, because I have studied Augustine quite a bit. Um, spend a whole semester studying that as well, you know. We're getting my entire curriculum here. Congratulations. Um... But Rousseau, I don't know. Like, I didn't know what to look for. I have vague ideas about what each of the works that are being quoted actually have to say, generally. But I didn't know what passages to, to scout out. I didn't know, you know, what other elements of his thought to really emphasize. Like, I know that the social contract is a big deal, but it's not really a big deal for love and friendship discussion, um, unless you get fairly open-minded about what love and friendship is actually about. Um, which, you know, we could have taken it in a more ethical direction. That might be fun for future future efforts at teaching this class. But what I wanted to very much emphasize was Rousseau's personal attitude towards love and friendship. I know that he is kind of a proto-romantic insofar as he very much values his own experience, very much sort of speaks highly of the, the passion, the fervor of love, while also sort of rejecting it from his overall philosophy. Um, 
I know that you are likely to find quite a bit of this in the way that he's instructing Emil and Sophie to behave towards themselves in the Emil. As we can see here, I know that he has quite a bit to say about these subjects in the Confessions, which we don't have an excerpt from. Um, and would honestly be really cool to teach from if I knew what I was doing, because then we could go from, we could do some interesting contrast between Augustine's Confessions and what he has to say there, and Rousseau's Confessions and what he has to say here in the 18th century, at the pinnacle of the Enlightenment. Um, we could definitely draw a lot of cool parallels there, but like I said, I've never read the Confessions, or not Rousseau's Confessions anyway, and I've never read the Emile top to bottom, and I've definitely never read the New Heloise or even, you know, some of the other social contract stuff. Like, Rousseau has always been a gaping hole in my knowledge, and now I'm forced to rely on the textbook, and it drives me up the wall, because I can tell that this is a bad excerpt. I can tell that, that, that I would want more context than what we're getting here, but I'm forced to rely upon it because I don't know what else to look for. Um, and this is something I'm going to fix. Like, I should I should stress this. You know, again, I've talked to my mom. She's getting me a book. Like, we're going to sort this out, but unfortunately we don't have the time to do that before I'm, you know, teaching the class. Like, it takes a while to become knowledgeable about a writer. You know, like... Typically, when I was doing my, my master's studies and I felt that I needed to overcome one of these blind spots, um, I would basically twist a paper to suit my ends. Like, there was a particularly famous example when uh, I was in seminary. <laughs> my wife absolutely will make fun of me about this all the time. Um, I was taking a class on the foundations of, like, theology, um, which was basically theology proper and sort of hermeneutics, um, and the class was not really dedicated towards hermeneutics. It was mostly about, like, who is God? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? What does the Bible say about God? What is the, you know, theology proper um, having to do with God? And when finally the paper came around, I was like, oh, I see that this paper can be about either the subject of God or the subject of hermeneutics, and I want to study Derrida. <laughs> so I'm going to read five books about Derrida before the end of the semester and absolutely lose my friggin' mind and then write a paper about Derrida and the Bible. And it was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life and one of the most profitable, like, scholarly projects I've ever undertaken. And my wife still makes fun of me to this day because I, like, was so exhausted that entire semester. Like, it's, it's to, this, to this day referred to in our household as the lost semester because, like, I would come and hang out with her. We were dating at that point and we would, like, watch a movie together and I would not recall that I had even watched that movie. Like, to this day... You know, she we, we apparently watched Star Trek Into Darkness at one point, which, from what I understand, was not a great movie. But supposedly I've seen it, and I remember, like, nothing of it. Like, zero. Um, yeah. So, what I want to emphasize is that it takes time to get knowledgeable about a scholar, and to take it takes time to get knowledgeable about their thought. It takes several months, even under the best of circumstances, which that wasn't, to become knowledgeable about Derrida, or to become knowledgeable about Foucault, or to become knowledgeable about Rousseau, for that, for that matter. Um, as much as we are sort of like touching on all of these scholars in our, sub, in our sort of search through history and, and our pursuit of understanding what love and friendship has meant through the ages, I want to emphasize you're not getting much. Like, if you were going out into the world and saying, yes, I know what Plato is all about, no, no, you don't. Not from this class. 
Um, like, once you've taken an entire class on the subject of Plato, then, then you probably will have a better idea what Plato is about, and you will still not be an expert by any extent of the imagination. Like, I am not a Plato expert, and I've been reading Plato for years. Um, it requires a lot of work to get to that level of familiarity. So, I don't know what the deal is with Rousseau. I don't know the context of the writings that we're getting here, but I do want to look at them um, for a variety of reasons. One, because I know that it is, in fact, important that Rousseau's ideas about love are unusual um, in the Enlightenment and are significant in what's going to develop out of the Enlightenment, as well as I actually know Mary Wollstonecraft better, which is why I totally included her in this in today's reading, and because I absolutely am thrilled to talk about Wollstonecraft's takedown of Rousseau. But on top of all of this, on top of the fact that I am frustrated with the, the, the excerpt here in the textbook, the fact that I don't know Rousseau that well, there's one giant cherry sitting on top of this grumpiness Sunday, and that is the fact that I don't like what I've read of Rousseau. And I, like, you have to understand my position here, I feel. Like, again, my mother has been singing the praises of Rousseau since I was a little kid. And as much as I have, in fact, not, like, truly familiarized myself with Rousseau enough to be able to say one way or the other whether I think that his philosophy is valuable or insightful or whatever, he just rubs me the wrong way. Like, knowing what his philosophy boils down to, knowing the summaries of, of what he's getting at, having read Derrida on Foucault and Wollstonecraft on Foucault and various other synopses of, of or not Foucault, Rousseau. Oh my gosh, I'm getting my Frenchies confused. It's going to be a rough day. Um, yes, as much as I am roughly familiar with all of these other people writing about Rousseau, every time that I have encountered his thought, I can't help but feel that he's just kind of a smug asshole. Um, I can't help it. I'm sorry. Like, that's... He kind of just rubs me the wrong way in that sense. And my mother is a saint. Like, I have no problem with my mom. Like, I love her to death. I'm not sure why she likes Rousseau as much as she does. I would think that she'd have better taste. Um, but again, like, she sees something that I don't, so whatever. I'm hardly in a position to judge, seeing as I've never even read one of Rousseau's books cover to cover, much less in the original French, much less studied it. Um, so... Let's call it, for now, a cordial distaste. Um, I don't know enough about Rousseau to make a strong opinion one way or the other, but what I can say is I'm not terribly excited to teach what Rousseau has to say. Or rather, I should say that I'm not terribly excited to in, like dig deeply into Rousseau's thought. Like, as much as I feel the need to, I don't really want to. Um, I am, however, excited to teach it. Not necessarily because I think that he's valuable and that he's going to change your life and that he's going to, you know, radically influence our discussion of love and friendship, but because I think he makes a really interesting contrast with a lot of the other thinkers that are, you know, that we have talked about. I think he's really strange for this particular moment in history. I think he's really striking. Um, I think he's an important pivot point for the philosophy, especially of the philosophy of love and friendship, um, and I want you to fight with him. Like, as much as I have been frustrated by Rousseau, I hope you are frustrated by Rousseau as well. I hope that you come away from this class spoiling for a fight. Because that's actually a really important part of the whole academic process, and it's definitely a really important part of what we are doing in this class. 
like as I've been emphasizing this whole way, we're talking about the way that ideas change, the way that you know the ideas of love and the ideas of friendship have matured, developed, altered, you know, become something new over the course of the centuries of philosophers that have that have sort of been talking about these things. I think Rousseau is largely a misstep. Or at the very least, I think Rousseau leads to some pretty heavy-duty missteps. Um, and I think that it's important to notice that that's a change that is occurring, that he is you know, speaking for a movement that is probably well underway at this point. Um, but I also want you to sort of caution yourself against Rousseau. You know, recognizing what he has to say is an important step in the process of sort of like guarding yourself against his particular philosophical agenda and the conclusions that he comes to. Um, so let's take a look. Let's let's look at our garbage excerpts here from the second discourse, Emil and the New Heloise, because that's a thing. Uh, remember too. We're backtracking a little bit. Like last time, we talked about Spinoza and Kant, which are unfortunate to pair together because Spinoza is, you know, right smack in the middle of the 17th century, and Kant comes right at the end of the 18th. Rousseau is mid 18th century when he's writing virtually all of these texts, um, and he is very much a thinker of the mid 18th century. It is his thought that is going to inspire the American revolutionaries to do their American revolution. Um, like Rousseau is one of the guys that was hanging around in, in France when Jefferson and company were all hanging around in France getting their philosophical upbringing. Um, so he's an important thinker to our personal history, like our, our national history. That's that's a thing that, you know, we shouldn't overlook here. Um, the, the Declaration of Independence, the, the Constitution, these are all thoroughly informed by the Enlightenment thinking and of Rousseau especially. Um, the social contract is all over the Constitution and the, the sort of early American thinking. Um, so let's look. Let's, let's see what he has to say here. And we'll start with the Second Discourse, which, again, we only get like one page from the Second Discourse. We get this little bit about the state of nature and we get this little bit about society. Um, and this is an important concept in Rousseau's thought, like... This is something that I have definitely heard about and sort of grappled with. This is something that, you know, frequently comes up in those summaries and, and sort of takedowns of Rousseau that I've talked about before. Um, so let's, let's look at what exactly he's saying here. So notice that in the state of nature, he's talking about the primitive state. Um, in the primitive state, having neither houses nor huts nor property of any kind, everyone took up his lodging by chance and often for only one night. Males and females united fortuitously, depending on encounter, occasion, and desire, and without speech, being a very necessary interpreter of the things they had to say to each other. They left each other with the same ease. The mother nursed her children at first for her own need, then, habit having endeared them to her, she nourished them afterward for their need. As soon as they had the strength to seek their food, they did not delay in leaving the mother herself, and as there was practically no other way to find one another again than not to lose sight of each other, they were soon at a point of not even recognizing one another. Just no, no, that's not how ancient culture works. Ah, um, so one of the things that is really important to Rousseau's thought and that is also kind of perniciously prevalent in 18th century thought and early 19th century thought as well, for that matter, um, when we were talking about how, like, with the scientific revolution and with the Enlightenment, we sort of start to see science develop, um... I want to also stress that most of the science is garbage. Like, 
Remember how we were talking about Sir Isaac Newton and the Principia Mathematica and the three laws of motion? And you know, Isaac Newton's a big deal. Like he came up with the law of gravity. Like these these are all really important ideas, and he's got a lot of really great things to say. Like Isaac Newton is probably one of the single most important mathematicians slash physicists slash scientists in the history of the world. Like no qualification there. He's a huge deal. He also spent a lot of his time studying alchemy. Like you know, that whole thing where we're going to turn, you know, lead into gold and, and, like, we're really excited about Quicksilver, Mercury, for some reason, and we think that there's some sort of, like, spiritual significance to changing chemicals around. Like, that was also something that Isaac Newton was really into. Um, the boundaries between the sciences are not terribly well defined at this point in time. And as a consequence, what goes under the name of science in the 17th and 18th century is occasionally terrible, like awful. Yes, we have the scientific method now, and the scientific method's a big deal, and it's very exciting, and when it is implemented and when it is used correctly, it does some really awesome stuff. Like, Isaac Newton has tons of things to say about light, all really interesting. Isaac Newton has tons of things to say about gravity, about motion, all really interesting, all really valuable, like moving the discussion forward. But at the same time, anything he had to say about alchemy just probably isn't all that helpful. Not to us, anyway. Like, I, there were hundreds of years of alchemists trying to figure out the deal with alchemy, and it was all dead ends, and it didn't get anywhere. Or at least, if it did, it's not something I appreciate. Like, I admittedly have not been reading any of the occult texts lately, but as much fun as it is to parody them in, in video games and movies and stuff, it's just, like, science has thrown out 99% of alchemy without any compunction or concern, and that's probably the right way of doing things. Notice that Rousseau here is doing sort of casual anthropology. Like, at this point in the 18th century, some archaeologists are actually doing stuff, and some anthropologists are actually doing stuff, and there is quite a bit of discussion about the state of nature, as Rousseau puts it here. Um, there's a lot of sort of inquiry surrounding what human development actually looked like, because at this point we are looking back over the entirety of human history, or at least the 1800 years uh, CE that we have seen, as well as the what we know of the ancient cultures, and we are curious. We're trying to get a better sense of what life used to be like, but it's really sketchy. Like, we don't know now very much about you know, pre-literate societies or pre-historical societies in some sense. You know, our record of human life very much starts with the records taken in Mesopotamia. And anything before that, while we can sort of get a decent picture with, you know, various burial rituals and where are the bones located and how are they positioned, and, you know, there are ton, tons of writers who are sort of writing about this period of time, talking about the development of human beings, talking about when certain tools start to appear and trying to understand, you know, at what ages or what moments in history did these major technological shifts occur. Their social calendar we really don't see much of. Like... We can speculate at best. We can make informed guesses according to the, the archaeological finds and the, the data that we that we see tracked down from you know oral traditions presumably passed down for long periods of time, from you know, like the way that various archaeological sites have been organized. But I mean we still don't know what the fuck Stonehenge was about. We still don't know how the hell they made the pyramids. Like we still don't even know how they made the 
how they made bronze before the Dark Age. Like, there's a ton of stuff that is just completely lost to us. So when Rousseau is saying, with this kind of authority, you know, well, back in prehistoric times, men and women only slept together for a night, and they didn't, you know, cohabitate for long periods of time, and when little kids wandered off far enough, they lost sight of their mom and forgot what they looked like. Like, no! There's no reason to believe that any of that is true. But what I want to stress isn't necessarily that it is true or false. Like, as much as this is bad science, very much on its face, what I want to stress is that Rousseau is actually talking about something that a lot of people believed in the 18th century. Remember, the Enlightenment is very much stressing this whole trajectory of history. Like, once upon a time, there were ancient civilizations, they were primitive, and they were basic, and they were simple, and, you know, they evolved into more and more complex civilizations. And the entire story of history is just this one long story of progress. The human race getting better and better with every progressive generation, every progressive year. Like, this is the story that the Enlightenment consistently tells itself. Because, again, as I stress with Kant and with Rousseau to some degree and with Hegel and many of the other thinkers of the time, we are at the end of history. Or at least that's how they see it. We have reached human civilization's peak. Like, we are better than any race that has come before. We are better than any species, any, you know, any era of humanity that has come before. We are at the end of history. We are on the verge of achieving our utopian perfection, our universal prosperity. And as a consequence, to fit this narrative, there's a good bit of retconning going on. Like, the entire medieval period is almost completely ignored by the Enlightenment. You'll notice that while there are several decent references throughout the various modern texts that we've been reading to Cicero, or to Aristotle, or to Plato, you'll notice that nobody seems terribly interested in Augustine, or Aquinas, or, you know, Andreas Capellanus. Like, nobody's even referring to the art of courtly love anymore, although you can see the way that the courtly love discussion is very much informing Dante's notion of romance, and indeed Rousseau's as well. That's because the medieval world is out of fashion. It doesn't fit with our story. The idea that we had the pinnacle of Roman civilization and we just futzed around for a thousand years until the Renaissance picked back up where we left off, like, this is not a convenient part of the we are, have constantly been progressing through history and now we are at the peak of civilization story that Enlightenment is telling. And likewise, just as we're ignoring what happened during the Dark Ages and during the medieval period, the Enlightenment is also very keen to point to the prehistoric period and say, as a consequence of the fact that we are at the height of civilization, they must have been at the absolute nadir. So organized institutions like marriage could not possibly have existed back then. And there's no reason to think that this is the case. Like, there's no reason to think that there, is, that there wasn't monogamy in prehistoric civilizations, prehistoric life. Like, yes, there are reasons to sort of conjecture about this, but we don't see Rousseau making those arguments. We just see him saying, this is how it was. Um, love did not exist. You know, romance did not exist. And even, like, from studying basic biology, the idea that the, you know, kid is not going to recognize the mother after a while, like, no, that's, that's not how it works. Um, most, you know, like, even basic primate societies, like, there are still family relationships observed, even though in those 
um, even in those like animal societies, at least as far as I know. I'm not a biologist, but my understanding is there is some significance there that Rousseau is just not picking up on. Because again, he has this fairly limited view, and science is a little rough at this point. Um, and I warn you, this roughness is going to cause problems. In the 19th century especially, like as much as it's a huge problem in the 18th century in its own right, in the 19th century we're going to see how some of these extrapolations and conjectures are, are going to be a huge issue um, between Freud and his kind of wild, off-the-cuff assumptions about human psychology to the just sheer staggering amount of quasi-scientific motivated racism that's going on in the 19th century. It is truly horrifying. Um, again, as we talked about last time, you know, the Enlightenment is sort of this very optimistic attitude towards human reason, towards human knowledge, towards human accomplishment, paired with a shocking amount of hypocrisy, or depending on how you want to put it, innocence about exactly what, what science involves and includes. I don't think Rousseau is aware of the fact that he's making conjectures far beyond the scope of good scientific reasoning, of what the, the scientific method should restrictively allow. Um, I think he's kind of just naive about that. Not necessarily, like, malicious by any extent of the imagination. But notice that Notice the contrast that Rousseau sets up here. On the one hand, we have this innocent state of nature, all of these people just doing people stuff, and they have sex with each other, and there's no consequences, and, you know, kids grow up, and there's no guidance, and, and everyone is just, you know, in this state of nature. Notice how he contrasts this with the rise of society. Everything begins to change its appearance. Men who until this time wandered in the woods, having adopted a more fixed settlement, slowly come together, unite into different bands, and finally form in each country a particular nation, unified by customs and character, not by regulations and laws, but by the same kind of life and foods and by the common influence of climate. Again, restraining the rage, like, no, that's... Calling them a nation is definitely using 18th century language to characterize a phenomenon that just did not abide in, you know, ancient cultures. Like, again, study some Mesopotamia, study some ancient Greece, and, like, Rousseau should know better on this one. Like, if he has read any ancient Greek texts, he, sh he should get a pretty good sense. But also, so many ancient cultures did, in fact, start with rules. Like, the earliest written records we have of anything are basically donations to temples. Like, Religion and rule has almost always been the guiding star of society. Or if it wasn't at some point, then it was far enough back in the past that like we cannot extrapolate or speculate about it. But again, restraining rage. Um, <clears throat> a permanent proximity cannot fail to engender at length some contact between them different families, young people of different sexes live in neighboring huts. The passing intercourse demanded by nature soon leads to another kind, no less sweet and more permanent, through mutual frequentation. People grow accustomed to consider different objects and to make comparisons. Imperceptibly, they acquire ideas of merit and beauty which produce sentiments of preference. By dint of seeing one another, they can no longer do without seeing one another again. A tender and gentle sentiment is gradually introduced into the soul, and at the least obstacle becomes an impetuous fury. Jealousy awakens with love. Discord triumphs, and the gentlest of the passions receives sacrifices of human blood. Notice the story that he's telling here. The way that he is characterizing history. 
Again, like we are doing in this class, and like many of the philosophers before him have been doing, they are, Rousseau is telling us a story about history, a story with a very distinct slant, and one that we should very much distrust. But notice, too, the consequences of this story, the point of this story. The point of this story is that we used to be innocent, and everything was pretty cool. But then we got civilized, and now bad things are happening. Discord, jealousy, fighting, you know, dissolution of the civilization that we've been building here. We are now separating, making people into different distinctions, saying that X is better than Y, you know, uh, A deserves more merit and honor than B does. Rousseau is rather concerned with this idea, and it comes up in his philosophy quite a bit, from what I understand. In the Emile as well, as much as we are not seeing those passages, Rousseau very much emphasizes that reason was a bad move for philosophy, for civilization, for human development, that it caused us to sort of give away our innocent state of nature, to sort of betray ourselves, and thus fall into this, you know, new, discerning, judgmental perspective that ultimately brought us low. And there are two things we really need to emphasize about this entire idea, this entire perspective. Um, notice, on the one hand, what this means for love. Rousseau is suggesting that once upon a time, love was pure, because there were no bounds, there were no traditions, there were no institutions, there were no rules surrounding it. If you fell in love with someone, you just did it, and it was fun, and then you left, and there were no strings attached, and then they raised a kid, whatever, no big deal. Um, which, again, let me stress, is not how that happened. Um, but this is the story that Rousseau is telling us, and so we need to understand how this is working. What Rousseau is basically saying is he's retelling the myth of Eden, but in a very different sense here. Like, remember, way back in when we were talking about the Old Testament, way back in Genesis 1, God created this perfectly good world, and everybody was awesome, and everybody was happy, and, you know, we screwed it up, and because of sin, now everything is bad. Rousseau is telling the same story, but the arguments, the things that made it bad, are different. For Rousseau, once upon a time, prehistoric humans lived in a state of ignorant bliss, and sexuality was not, like, restricted. Sexuality was not, you know, dominated by rules or regulations. You know, men and women had sex, no strings attached, and everything was great. They loved each other, no strings attached, everything was great. And then civilization happened, and we all got this mad notion that we should be jealous of one another. And we got these ideas that some people were better than others. This is the moment of the fall for Rousseau. You know, just as the Bible says that it's eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Rousseau is kind of riffing on this very same idea. Now that people know about good and evil, now that people are moralizing, now that people are judging each other, well, now civilization starts and everything falls apart and people will never be happy again. I need to stress this because we need to recognize, A, that this is an idea that's going to take off. Like, this is not the last we're going to hear of this ideal state of nature kind of argument. Um, but it also should be stressed because this is really weird for the Enlightenment. Like, that's the second thing I wanted to mention here. Like, having, like, having talked about the Enlightenment last time as being this sort of hyper-rational society 
the society that is enamored with the idea of reason, enamored with the idea of knowledge, convinced that science is going to save us and that we can now perfect the species, perfect government, perfect, you know, human interaction with the help of rationality, with the help of science, for Rousseau to say, actually, science is a bad thing, is kind of an important thing to notice here. Rousseau is working counter to a lot of the ideas of the Enlightenment in that respect. Now, he's doing so with Enlightenment principles. Again, it's like his knowledge or quasi-knowledge of nature and of society is, is what's informing this. But it's worth noting, you know, this is, this is countercultural. Rousseau is fighting back against Enlightenment thinking, fighting back against the idea that science and technology and civilization is going to, you know, reform and correct all of the things that make human nature evil. And I want to stress this, because Rousseau's entire approach here, both his very personal sort of discussion, like the fact that he writes a personal confession in the style of Augustine, um, as well as his is philosophical arguments that the state of nature is somehow better or like higher, innocent, um, superior, like healthier than the state of civilization that he's seen now in the 18th century. This is something that the Romantics are definitely going to pick up on and they're definitely going to bring it out more. And it's worth noting the historical circumstances here again. Something that we haven't talked about in the whole like modernism, scientific revolution, enlightenment business is while this is happening, we are also getting that famously, you know, destructive change in human society known as the Industrial Revolution. Um, and this is another one of those historical elements that is just ludicrously complicated and very difficult to wrap into everything else that we've also been talking about. But I want to emphasize a couple of things about the Industrial Revolution and why Rousseau seems so opposed to civilization um, here in his, his writings about the state of nature, as well as through the rest of his writings as well. The Industrial Revolution is kind of the dark side of the Enlightenment, as far as, you know, the writers of the time are concerned. Like, again, there's totally a dark side with all that colonialism and slavery going on that nobody seems to be terribly upset by, and that's, you know, obviously something that we should, as a society, be very conscientious of, especially now that it's the 21st century and we've seen exactly how awful the consequences of those blind spots actually were. But at the time, the thing that was primarily concerning philosophers and writers and thinkers and artists at the moment was the fact that society looked different than it used to. Civilization, where it was once, you know, little city-states or little cities and, and, like, people hanging out with each other in, in fairly close proximity, at this point, now that there are factories, now that we're starting to harness steam power, now that the urbanization of Europe has really commenced, where nature used to be something hostile and dangerous, unpredictable, and therefore in need of being tamed, now nature is a respite from cities that are choked with smog, overcrowded, dirty, smelly, and gross. Um, civilization for, you know, like the, the medieval writers and, and the, the Renaissance writers, um, civilization was, you know, extremely beautiful, attractive buildings and cities that gleamed when viewed from the hillside. You know, cities represented, you know, like safety in the midst of the wilderness. 
Um, and frequently, when you understood heaven, you described it as a city. Like, oftentimes, you know, writers in, in the Renaissance especially would describe utopian paradises as being filled with high towers and, and you know, these gorgeous buildings. By contrast, now, buildings are ugly and squat and functional and pragmatic. And when you walk down the streets of an industrial-era city, an Enlightenment-era city, you're going to run into a whole bunch of people who are gross and, like, who haven't been washing regularly and, you know, the, the plagues are sweeping through fairly regularly. It is not a nice place to be. Um, again, that's not to say that cities before the Industrial Revolution were, you know, all gorgeous masterpieces. Like, there were lots of, you know, hygiene problems and other issues there as well. Um, but at this point, because of the way that the economy is changing, because there is no, because technology has improved to the point that, like, one farmer can take care of his whole farm using, or modern farming uh, technology and implementation, and you no longer need, like, dozens of people to help work the farm with you. People are moving out of the countryside, out of the villages, because there's already, you know, food to be had, and, and they're, they're not getting jobs there, and they're moving into the cities, where they're working in textile mills, and plants, and factories. They're, you know, sitting stuck together, really close, shoulder to shoulder, all the time, day after day after day. Um, they're living in bunkhouses that are incredibly crowded and unsanitary. Um, it's not pleasant. So when Rousseau is holding up the state of nature over and against civilization, he is not necessarily rejecting science so much as he is rejecting urbanization. Um, he is seeing the sort of fruits of scientific development, of, you know, the factory sort of supplanting the, the household, you know, productivity. Um, he's seeing the way that the family is gradually being disintegrated in favor of laborers, population, sort of, you know, being the deciding factor here. And he's seeing the ugly business of working in these factories, because again, they're cramped and people are not getting paid enough, and they're working all hours of the day, and children and adults are both working side by side because there are no labor laws at this point. Um, it's unsanitary, it's unhealthy, people are injured on a regular basis, and there's nothing like workers' compensation to protect them. Like, people are dying in these facilities, and dying senselessly, without anything to show for it. Like, nobody is paying off their widows or their families. Like, it's an ugly sort of situation. As much as this is the age of reason, it is not the age of humanity in any extent of the imagination. That has kind of gone by the wayside. And what's more... In the 18th century, increasingly, and even more so into the 19th century, we are going to see this conflict between the forces of progress on the one hand and the forces for humanity on the other. A conflict that largely extends into today, um, based on the fact that the industrialists and the capitalists stand on one side of the political spectrum against those who are arguing for a better social order. Um, a sort of more moral attitude towards human life and human well welfare and well-being. Um, this, as we are getting through this class, obviously we are getting closer to the present. And, you know, the situations that we see described by these philosophers are going to more and more resemble our own as time goes on. Rousseau 
is perhaps the first philosopher that we've talked about who is attentive to this problem, attentive to the Industrial Revolution, and aware of the sort of negative effects it's having on human life, even as it's aware of the positive effects that it has on the human economy, so to speak. Um, as much as this is the wealthiest and the greatest moment in human history, just as the industrial or the other Enlightenment philosophers have stressed, Rousseau is aware that it's coming at a cost. And as much as his story is nonsense, this idea holds water and should be something that we should be concerned with and aware of. Rousseau is talking about the dehumanization of human beings, the fact that they are just turned into labor by these economic and social powers. And he is saying that this is a bad move. As much as this may be, quote, progress, it is also a huge problem. It's going to make people less than they should be. And when Rousseau fights back for a state of nature, he's sort of oblivious to the fact that nature 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago was something dangerous, hostile, unpredictable, and potentially destructive. Like, he is looking at nature in terms of beautiful trees and rivers and human beings idyllically living in caves and, you know, bounteous paradises of, of lush verdure and, you know, fruit falling off the trees. That's not what nature was to the prehistoric people. Like, it just wasn't. Survival was such a major concern back then. And while he is at least a little bit attentive to how big a deal survival is supposed to be, he clearly doesn't recognize that that's also kind of awful and terrifying and problematic. Um, nor do I think does he care. Because many of the thinkers in this Rousseauian line and many romantics in the 19th century are going to argue better to struggle for one's survival honestly than to live under the thumb of somebody else who controls you and end up struggling for your survival with no hope of actually controlling your circumstances. At least prehistoric man was master of his destiny. He died for his own reasons. Like, he, he was crushed by his own incompetence. And not just because, you know, his evil capitalist uh, factory owner worked him into the ground and there was nothing that he could do about it. Um, so keep this in mind. Like, as much as the state of nature argument is something that frustrates me and I am very grumpy about it, like, it has its place. Um, Rousseau is noticing that industrialism is accompanying this progress of the Enlightenment thinking, and it comes at this cost. Now, in the Emile, um, Rousseau is doing something fairly similar. He is building off of this idea. Um, the Emile is probably one of Rousseau's biggest and most important works, at least it was in its own time. Um, it's kind of gotten downgraded below the social contract um, since then, as well as the Confessions. Um, De Emile is a book about teaching, which is part of the reason why my mom liked it so much. Um, in the Emile, Rousseau basically is writing a novel, question mark, but it is more like a teaching handbook. Rousseau's narrator is educating young Emile, and he has virtually 100% control over Emile's education. Like, for whatever reason, his, Emile's parents have basically given Rousseau's narrator character full sway over the development of Emile. Um, and we watch as Emile grows up, and at every stage of his development, Rousseau's narrator slash educator slash, you know, governor, nurse, whatever, 
is guiding him through the various struggles and problems that Emil is facing. So when he's a little kid, Rousseau is teaching him one way. When he's an adolescent, he's being taught another way. The passage that we have is from book five of the Emil, the last book, at which point Emil has grown into a young man and he has met Sophie. And Sophie is a young woman who Emil has feelings for and Rousseau's narrator is guiding them through the tumultuous business of falling in love, um, getting married, and then living their married life together. Um, and you should notice the way that Rousseau counsels them here. Um, Notice that Rousseau's narrator is counseling Emil in one direction and then counseling Sophie in kind of a counter direction. Like he is trying to navigate for both of them through to a moderate position. But notice also the assumptions that he is making here. So notice at the beginning of this excerpt, if it is true then, dear Emil, that you want to be your wife's lover, let her always be your mistress and her own. Be a fulfilled but respectful lover. Obtain everything from love without demanding anything from duty, and always regard Sophie's least favors not as your right, but as acts of grace. I know that modesty flees formal confessions and asks to be conquered, but does the lover who has delicacy and true love make mistakes about his beloved secret will? Is he unaware when her heart and her eyes accord what her mouth feigns to refuse? Let each of you always remain master of his own person and his caresses, and have the right to dispense them to the other only at his own will. Always remember that even in marriage, pleasure is legitimate only when desire is shared. Do not fear, my children, that this law will keep you at a distance. On the contrary, it will make both of you more attentive to pleasing each other, and it will prevent satiety. Since you are limited solely to each other, nature and love will bring you sufficiently close together. And now we should be pretty cool with this. Like, essentially, Rousseau is saying, hey, practice consent. Like, each of you be master of your own bodies, and, you know, be careful about the way that you issue your caresses to each other. Like, this is okay, right? But at the same time, we have to note the reasoning here, the sort of motivation, the agenda that Rousseau's narrator is sort of presenting to us. On the one hand, notice that he is saying, you know, do not treat Sophie's favors as your right, but as acts of grace. Uh, but at the same time, he is also stressing that, like, we are worried about satiety, about getting tired of one another, and the caresses and the sexuality that is shared between these two people are to be governed carefully so neither of them get tired of each other, i.e. they're manipulating each other. They're withholding their sexual favors from one another for the sake of sort of power in the relationship. It's kind of hard to say here. Um, and notice that the reaction that Emil has to hearing about this is Emil becomes irritated and Sophie becomes ashamed. Like, everybody's kind of upset about what uh, Rousseau is saying here. But in the context of this overall book, Rousseau's narrator is presented as, you know, the wise sage giving good counsel to otherwise innocent and inexperienced young people. Um, and if anything, notice that the emphasis is that they are embarrassed uh, the most discontented of the two is perhaps not the one who complains the most. I insist pitilessly. I make Emile blush at his lack of delicacy. I stand as guarantor for Sophie's accepting the treaty on her side. I provoke her to speak. Like, he's making them do this. And on the one hand, this is probably good. Like, a young married couple needs to communicate and are kind of disinclined to do that. But on the other hand, notice that it is kind of unnatural what we are talking about here. That it is, you know... Even more so than we talked about this sort of state of nature versus civilization debate, 
Rousseau is operating from the assumption that the state of nature needs to sort of like be reestablished through civilization. It's hard to exactly figure out what, what, what's going on here. Um, but notice, too, uh, where we go from here. Like, apparently the next day they, they all get together again, and Sophie is really flirtatious and charming, but Emile is, like, grumpy and complaining. And it turns out that it's because Sophie has taken uh, Rousseau's advice to heart and has very much been making Emile sleep on the couch. Um, like, quite literally, in this case. Um, and now Rousseau goes so far as to counsel Sophie. Um, and he says, you know, I see the reason for this caprice. One could not have greater delicacy nor make a more inappropriate use of it. Dear Sophie, reassure yourself. I have given you a man. Do not fear to take him for a man. You have had the first fruits of his youth. He has not squandered it on anyone. He will preserve it for you for a long time. My dear child, I must explain to you what my intentions were in the conversation all three of us had the day before yesterday. You perhaps perceived in my advice only an art of managing your pleasures in order to make them durable. Oh, Sophie, it had another object more worthy of my efforts. In becoming your husband, Emile has become the head of the house. It is for you to obey, just as nature wanted it. However, when the woman resembles Sophie, it is good that the man be guided by her. This is yet another law of nature, and it is in order to give you as much authority over his heart as his sex gives him over your person that I have made you the arbiter of his pleasures. It will cost you some painful privations, but you will reign over him if you know how to reign over yourself. What has happened already shows me that this difficult art is not beyond your courage. You will reign by means of love for a long time if you make your favors rare and precious, if you know how to make them valued." Do you want to see your husband constantly at your feet? Then keep him always at some distance from your person. But put modesty and not capriciousness in your severity. Let him view you as reserved, not whimsical. Take care that in managing his love, you do not make him doubt your own. So, be cold towards your husband, but not too cold, because that's the way that you're going to control him, is the way that Rousseau is basically describing this situation. And notice that he emphasizes it by repeating, this is a law of nature, this is the state of nature, um, this is what civilization has crushed, has destroyed, has like abolished in some way. And to some degree, he's not wrong. Like, we see a similar kind of set of arguments from the ancient Greeks. Like, if you read the Odyssey, for example, or if you read Homer's uh, works and days in the Theogony, he recognizes, yes, like, men are, you know, the heads of the household, they're the ones that go out into society, but, you know, Greek women can control Greek men if they just withhold sexuality or if their displeasure is obvious or if they, you know, are, are plotting with the other members of the household. Like, in the Iliad, there's a famous, uh, a famous passage where Zeus is getting really grumpy and he puts like a, a stern ban on helping out either the Trojans or the Greeks during the war. And Hera is like, but it's going poorly for the Greeks. We need to help the Greeks. So Hera like talks to Aphrodite and takes like all of her sexy clothes. And Hera like lures Zeus into their bedchamber by being seductive and, and really hot. And while she is, you know, seducing him, like Athena sneaks off and she is helping the Greeks out. In ancient Greek culture, this was kind of understood. Like, women did have power over their husbands. They could, in fact, manipulate them. They were cunning. They could use their sensuality. They could, you know, use their bodies and their wiles and their, their attractiveness as a weapon in order to get their way in the, the maintenance of the household. 
I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty fucked up to me. And Rousseau doesn't seem to have any argument about it. Like, if anything, he is encouraging the exact same. Not a relationship of mutual trust or of mutual discussion. He's not saying, Emile, Sophie, why don't you talk to each other and come to, to conclusions together? Like, he is saying that, yes, Sophie, you should have input into what your husband is, is deciding for you and for your family, but you should do so by basically withholding sexuality until your husband caves. Like, feel free to trust yourself to do that. Like, I know that you, as a frail woman, would not, you know, take it upon yourself to manipulate and govern your husband in this way normally, but you are a woman of good character, Sophie, and therefore it's totally okay for you to cock-block your husband until you get what you want. No! 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 Like, and this is perceived to be good advice. You will find passages like this in all kinds of writing at the time, not just sort of these pedagogical works where it's like, here is the good advice that we are giving our daughters and our, our wives. Like, also, just in literature, you're going to see this happen fairly frequently. And the women praised for their prudence or for their reserve or for their you know chastity in these various cases. It's finally time! I don't know how we made it this long through the course, but it is finally time to talk about feminism. Like, how we got this far is probably just an indication that I am really bad at teaching this course at this point, point. I really need to reevaluate some of my sources. But up until this point, we've read only a couple of women writers. Only a couple of works that have sort of touched on the male versus female components of the love relationship. Um, like, or they've just been completely from the male perspective and they've been fairly dismissive of this. Like, we've touched on it frequently, we keep bumping into it, it's time to con consolidate this. Turn, in, turn this into an actual part of our course and recognize what has actually been said in all of these texts up until this point. Because you'll notice, as far back as, you know, the ancient Greek works, like Plato and Aristotle, we hear over and over and over again, you know, women and men cannot be on the same page. That they are just not equal to one another. And therefore, Plato concludes, okay, so the perfect version of love is men sleeping with men. And Aristotle is arguing this virtually the same. The perfect form of love, the perfect form of friendship can only exist between men and other men. Now, the Old Testament is a little different. But we did stress there that, yes, it is also fairly heavily misogynistic. It stresses that, you know, Eve is supposed to be subordinate to her husband. It stresses, you know, Ruth is supposed to marry for the sake of the family. Like, there is a certain amount of, of you know, subordination of women, of subjection of women, all of that stuff. But the relationship is a little bit different. Where the Greeks are stressing that women can't possibly be equals to their husbands. They certainly shouldn't be relied upon for, you know, mental support or intellectual advice because they don't have the training, because they haven't been brought up that way, and because presumably the frailty of their sex prevents them from, you know, being intelligent or careful or wise or, you know, learned in these various things. The Old Testament is at least willing to say, no, women are actually really awesome, and you should trust them, and you should listen to them, and you should, you know, respect them to some degree. Um, they are still subordinate to their husbands, but the relationship between the husband and wife is way closer in the Old Testament than it would be in ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, women are largely disposable. They're, they're not 
you know, they're good for political alliances and they're useful in certain circumstances. And there are exceptions, like take a look at, you know, Penelope in the Odyssey or Andromache in the Iliad or Medea in Euripides' Medea. Like, there are examples of strong women, like not just vindictive, monstrous, manipulative women, the way that we see, you know, Rousseau talking about it here or the way that I talked about Hera and Zeus earlier in the Iliad. Um, there are other examples. The Greeks have a more robust notion of womanhood than they uh, frequently get credit for, but Plato and Aristotle miss that, and I'm not, a, you know, apologizing for it. Like it's, it's kind of a mess. It's wrong that they did this. That somehow in this process, women got just completely overlooked. Now, admittedly, Plato does give diatima precedence of place, so that's pretty cool. Like that's better than I would have expected from the ancient Greeks philosophers at this point. So at least Plato is attentive to this. Aristotle, not so much. Like, Aristotle, I don't think there's any redeeming value given to women in any of his writings. If anything, he's pretty rigorously against women. And then we get the Romans, and it's even worse, and we get Christianity, and we get all that better-to-marry-than-to-burn stuff, and we get medieval philosophy, and once again, women are very much sidelined. Like, I don't think Aquinas brought up women once, besides talking about, you know, concupiscent love being potentially problematic. Um, and then even in the modern period, like as much as now women should have a better place, we do see some women, you know, writing and contributing their thoughts to the discussion. For all of that, you know, we don't actually have a lot of men saying, oh, also women are smart. Like the closest we get to it is Milton. Um, in his discussion of, of divorce and, and marriage. And I mentioned when we were talking about Milton that, you know, he's stressing that women should be a match for men, that they should be, you know, a company for them, that men, it is not good for the man to be alone, and therefore a proper marriage gets rid of that loneliness. Whereas a marriage between an unfit pair should be dissolved because they are not properly accompanying them. And while he does talk about the frigidity of women and all that, he's doing it as a secondary example. Like, this should not be the model that we are judging women according to. Instead, we should be judging them as fit helpers for their menfolk. Now, admittedly, still subordinate, and Milton is one of the targets that Mary Wollstonecraft picks on. But what I want to stress here is exactly what the trajectory of love, marriage, and so on, as we've been talking about it, has led us to as far as the role of women in life. On the one hand, we have the women as object, strain, as we've seen in you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome especially. Now, in medieval philosophy, we also saw develop this courtly love attitude, which is very, very different. And I mentioned it when it came up. I specifically said that, like, we get this new tradition where women are treated as goddesses, as these holy beings, completely separate from menfolk, who, you know, are, are righteous and beautiful and pure and therefore should be worshipped and you should pine for them all the time. And as much as Andreas Capellanus is sort of stressing that, oh, also women can do this too, like, it's just a throwaway and it, it very much doesn't count for much. It's certainly not the way that courtly love was usually envisioned. It's usually the guy who is carefully wittily pining for the woman while the woman, you know, heaves her share of sighs but takes a much more passive role because she's married. And then we see Dante develop that idea even further. Now we have Beatrice, who does take an active role in their relationship, for sure, and we should definitely be sort of attentive to that. But notice that the entire text is structured around Dante's worship of Beatrice, not Beatrice's attraction to Dante. Beatrice saves Dante. Beatrice is the greater power than Dante. Beatrice is definitely presented as though she is higher 
than Dante. And again, this is very much in line with that courtly love tradition. But posing her as an agent is difficult in Dante's par or Divine Comedy. Um, she is above Dante so far that, he, that she is presented largely as an object of his admiration and worship. The relationship between Dante and Beatrice never reaches a point that they are equals, that they are helpers to one another. It is like the courtly love relationship. They are separated early, and Dante pines for her, and their love through this pining is apparently so strong that it transcends time, space, death, you know, salvation, the whole thing. Now, it is once again a shame that we also didn't get to talk about Abelard and Heloise, because, for one thing, Rousseau deliberately quotes it here. Like, his new Heloise is, is basically framed as, like, a new Abelard is talking to a new Heloise. Um, Julie is sort of chiding Abelard, or our Abelard surrogate, um, for his behavior here. And I want to sort of poke at this. Like, I want to see what Rousseau is doing. Because this is actually interesting and sophisticated as far as this whole feminism discussion is developing here. Um, notice that in the first letter to Julie, we get a classic 18th and 19th century sort of love description, where our Abelard is, you know, admiring Julie from a distance, that, you know, he sees her weeping on the breast of her, her friend, and he's just so moved by his love and so profoundly touched by this the scene that like he is he's practically weeping with the the ardor of his his affections for her um, but notice that Julie responds by chiding him like I'm not entirely sure if this is the right context again the lack of context for the for the uh, excerpts is, is definitely rankling me here but notice that Julie responds by condemning his feelings um, on page 115, the first full paragraph, I am possibly mistaken, but it seems to me that true love is the most chaste of all bonds. It is true love. It is its divine fire which can purify our natural inclinations by concentrating them in a single object. It is true love which shelters us from temptations and which makes the opposite sex no longer important except for the beloved one. For an ordinary woman, every man is always the same, but for her whose heart is in love, there is no man but her lover. What do I say? Is a lover no more than a man? Ah, let him be a much more sublime being. There is no man at all for her who is in love. Her lover is more, all the others are less, and she in here the only of their kind. They have no desires, they are in love. The heart does not follow, but guides the senses. It throws a delightful veil over their frenzies. No, in true love there is nothing of the obscene, as in debauchery in its coarse language. True love, always modest, does not rest its favors audaciously. It steals them timidly. Secrecy, silence, and fierce fearful bashfulness sharpen and conceal its sweet ecstasies. Its flame honors and purifies all, all its caresses. Decency and chastity accompany it in, even into the midst of voluptuousness, and it alone knows how to gratify all the desires without trespassing against modesty. Ah, tell me, you who once knew true pleasures, how could cynical effrontery be joined to them? How could it not fail to banish their delirium and all their charm? How could it not fail to soil that image of perfection in which one likes to contemplate his beloved? Believe me, my friend, debauchery and love could not live together and cannot even be set against each other. The heart creates too, true happiness when two people are in love, and nothing can take the place of it when they are no longer so. But if you were unfortunate enough to take pleasure in this immodest language, how could you have prevailed on yourself to use it so indiscreetly? And toward who, who is toward her who is dear to you, to take on a tone and manners which a man of honor must not even know. 
Since when has it been pleasant to mortify a loved one, and what is this barbarous voluptuousness which delights in enjoying the torment of others? Notice, on the one hand, Julie is absolutely steering into the courtly love tradition. You know, love is this pure, beautiful thing that admires the beloved from afar. It is gentle, and it is careful in its language, and it is modest, and it is chaste. You know, we get that same kind of language from Andreas Capellanus, where she's saying that, like, there is, you know, no man but her lover for the woman in love. Like, that's totally courtly love all over the place. But at the same time, she is chiding her lover's perspective, her, his talking about, you know, this coming upon these two beautiful women weeping on each other's exposed and lovely bosoms. Um, like, she is absolutely against the typical literary, like, language that is used to talk about these love relationships, this sort of, you know, masculine voluptuousness and barbarousness that she identifies, but at the same time, she is literally putting herself in the position of Beatrice, saying, I am higher than you, and I chastise you for your barbarousness. On the one hand, Rousseau is making it out as though, you know, the the typical language of love is wrong and, like, gross, grotesque, but in the process, he's very much steering into the same courtly love tradition. So on the one hand, we have this recognized division between Rousseau, but it is a division that shouldn't necessarily be as limited as this. There aren't just two options here. It's not either we view women as whores or we view women as Madonnas. And in fact, this is the language that our culture in the 21st century uses to describe this kind of trope, the Madonna whore complex. What Rousseau is describing is saying, don't be a whore, be Madonna. But the fact of the matter is, women shouldn't have to pick between these two models. Love should not be restricted to the Greek model of possession, ownership, and enjoying a woman for her pleasures, and that's all that she's useful for. Nor should they be put up on a pedestal and treated as though they're like pure goddesses beyond the reach of human contact or understanding. Women are humans. They are not to be denigrated. They are not to be worshipped. They are to be equals, in some sense. Enter Mary Wollstonecraft. And oh man, when I was reading Rousseau and trying to prepare for this class, I was like, how the heck am I going to follow up Rousseau because I don't want to like jump into romanticism too early. Oh, it was a stroke of inspiration, if I do say so myself, to let Mary Wollstonecraft beat the living shit out of Rousseau and on the stage of my class. Like, I am so excited about it. Wollstonecraft's argument is fundamentally, and she states it here in chapter 2, like the literal last line is kind of her thesis here, um, that we shouldn't be dividing men and women and their virtues into two separate categories. Um, we cannot treat women as a fundamentally different creature than men are. And her indignation about this is truly wonderful. Um, and I want to stress a couple of things about this before we sort of dive into what Wollstonecraft is actually saying. I want to stress first that, again, Wollstonecraft is one of the first major feminist philosophers in the history of philosophy. Um, she isn't the first woman we're reading in here. Like, we read some Sappho, we read Theano's letter on marriage and chastity to her, to her friend when, you know, the friend was like, oh, my husband is cheating on me, and she's like, well, don't make it worse. And, like, this is the extent of feminism at this point, it would seem. Um, hooray, women can practice stoicism too, but, you know, at what cost? Um, by contrast, Wollstonecraft is actually, you know, 
erudite. She's done all of her reading. She knows Rousseau, and she knows Dr. Gregory, and she's read Milton extensively and gotten really grumpy about Milton. Not admittedly the letter we read, but rather Milton's Paradise Lost. And what's more, she is she has a very clear argument to make here. Um, but on the other hand, I also want to stress, this is how philosophy works. Like, we haven't seen a whole lot of, like, philosophers picking fights with each other because they tend to be a little bit more civil um, in the, the foregoing centuries than Mary Wollstonecraft is here, which God bless her for just coming out and saying exactly how awful men are treating her. Um, but at the same time, like, I have frequently been posing this philosophical discussion as, you know, series of fights. You know, Aristotle rejecting some of Plato and embracing some of the rest of Plato. And then, like, uh, Augustine sort of navigating between, you know, Plato and Aristotle on the one hand and Christianity on the other. And, you know, Aquinas sort of, like, taking some of Plato, some of Aristotle's thought and then rejecting those damn courtly love people with their ridiculous notions. Like, here we see first, probably for the first time this explicitly, Mary Wollstonecraft picking a fight with a previous philosopher that we've discussed in this class. And this is kind of typical of the Enlightenment. Like, we talked, too, about Kant, and when he's calling, you know, Montaigne and Cicero those rhetorical moralists. Like, damn, Kant! Gonna need some salve for that burn. But Mary Wollstonecraft is doing the same, and she is literally calling out the people, by name in some cases. Um... And this is what philosophy is often going to look like from here on out. Like, philosophers will literally say, you know, such, such and such person is not, you know, telling us the truth. They are an idiot, or they are a bung bungler or in some ways. Like, this has definitely happened in the ancient world. Like, God bless Tertullian, that monster. Um, insults are a fun part of philosophical study, and it's a shame that we don't get to read them quite as often here as, uh, as I like to. Um, but Wollstonecraft is an excellent example, and it's especially good because she's got such a great point to make here. Um, so let's talk about Chapter 2, The Prevailing Opinion of a Sexual Character Discussed. Um, notice this first paragraph, where she sort of sums up the problem here. To account for and excuse the tyranny of man, many ingenious arguments have been brought forward to prove that the two sexes in the acquirement of virtue ought to aim at attaining a very different character. Or, to speak explicitly, women are not allowed to have sufficient strength of mind to acquire what really deserves the name of virtue. Yet it should seem, allowing them to have souls, that there is but one way appointed by providence to lead mankind to either virtue or happiness. Notice that, again, she's being rather snarky here. I love the line, allowing them to have souls. Like, most people seem to assume that women do not have souls, or they would not assume that, like, they need to practice a completely different set of virtues in order to achieve, you know, happiness, blessedness, heaven, whatever you want to call it. Um, but also, notice here what the actual argument being presented is. Wollstonecraft is pointing out that, to this point, women have been given a completely different set of virtues than men have. And we've talked about virtue quite a bit. Like, remember Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics is entirely just a discussion of virtue, and Aquinas is building on that. We've seen sort of the virtues expressed as this fundamental uh, component of friendship and love. All these relationships, like, they hinge on the compatibility of the virtue of the various participants. Like, remember, both Aristotle and Cicero stressed, you know, virtue is what makes friends friends. But if, in fact, as Wollstonecraft is suggesting, women have been cut out of that virtue, have been sort of 
sidelined, have been given a different set of virtues to recall, notice that that also excludes them from friendship, from love, from equality, from all of the things that the Enlightenment is promising. Like, remember, the Enlightenment is all about, you know, everybody is rational, everybody is equal, everybody has dignity, everybody should be treated equally, everybody should be represented in government, everybody should, you know, have these rights and have these abilities, be able to participate in the social sphere, except, of course, women, because they apparently don't have souls. Like, we will not train women in rationality, we will not train women in politics, we will not train women in, you know, social theory, we will not train women in, you know government. We will always keep them excluded. And Mary Wollstonecraft asks, why? If then women are not a swarm of ephemeron triflers, why should they be kept in ignorance under the specious name of innocence? Men complain, and with reason, of the follies and caprices of our sex, when they do not keenly satirize our headstrong passions and groveling vices. Behold, I should answer, the natural effect of ignorance. All of these men are complaining all the time about how women are triflers. They're concerned with dresses and fancy clothes, and they're always plotting for, you know, liaisons with other men, and they're totally concerned with dating and, you know, the whole marriage business, and it seems like that's all that they care about, and they're passionate, and they get really excited about things, they get overly emotional about things, and men are like, damn it, why are women like this? Mary Wollstonecraft answers, because that's all we have! That's all you're going to give us! You don't let us read books. You don't let us study at universities. You don't let us participate in, uh, in academic conversations. You don't give us the opportunity to study philosophy or literature or any of the important things that define a meaningful existence and have for hundreds of years. No wonder, then, that we are taught to act frivolously, to get excited about dresses. What else do we have to get excited about? No wonder, then, that we're constantly plotting to make matches with, you know, various marriages, marriage proposals. What else do we have to get excited about? That's like the only thing that we are taught about. That is the only thing that we have in our lives. The mind will ever be unsuitable that has only prejudices to rest on, and the current will run with destructive fury when there are no barriers to break its force. Women are told from their infancy and taught by the example of their mothers that a little knowledge of human weakness, justly termed cunning, softness of temper, outward obedience, and a scrupulous attention to a puerile kind of propriety will obtain for them the protection of a man, and should they be beautiful, everything else is needless for at least 20 years of their lives." Women are being trained to be docile, to be obedient, to be accepting of whatever their menfolk tell them to be. They are trained to be innocent, in the same way that Rousseau is talking about it here. Like, how dare you practice debauchery in my presence? Don't you know that I am a holier being than thou? Or think of Sophie, you know, withhold your, your sexuality from him, because that's how you're going to get control over him. That's the kind of cunning that Wallstonecraft is talking about here. But that's the only weapon in the woman's arsenal. Like, she can't prevail over her husband with rational arguments because she's never been trained in reason. She can't prevail over her husband by, you know, presenting a very erudite case for what it is that she wants, for arguing her case, because the man is going to dismiss her out of hand because she is overly emotional and overly concerned with frivolous nonsense, and she doesn't have any way to fight back except, like Rousseau counsels Sophie, withhold her sex from him until he caves. That's messed up. That's not virtue. Like, if in fact there is some series of virtues that God admires in human beings that have been prescribed by Aristotle or by Aquinas or by any of the thinkers that we've talked about, 
that guarantee, you know, happiness and self-sufficiency and, you know, all of the things that life grants to a person who is successful, why are women being kept out of that? Why are women being taught a completely different program? Why are they being given an alternative, something totally different? That's not fair, Wollstonecraft is saying. And what's more, this whole discussion of love in Wollstonecraft's light takes on a very different kind of look. So notice after the break, after all those quotes from Milton and the whole business of, you know, like Milton not being on the same page with himself in The Paradise Lost, she says, To speak disrespectfully of love is, I know, high treason against sentiment and fine feelings, but I wish to speak the simple language of truth, and rather to address the head than the heart. Notice again, she's emphasizing, I am going to make rational arguments because I prioritize reason, because everybody prioritizes reason, and matters of the heart are usually reserved for women, which are considered secondary because they are speaking about matters from the heart. To endeavor to reason love out of the world would be to out Quixote Cervantes, and equally offend against common sense. I.e., we're never going to get rid of love. Like, that's that's not my goal here. That's pointless to try and do that. The whole passage to out Quixote Cervantes is, like, to basically, you know, take on a mad, uh, idealistic quest that can't possibly succeed. Um, yeah, Don Quixote. It's a great book. You should read it sometime. But in their endeavor to restrain this tumultuous passion and to prove that it should not be allowed to dethrone superior powers or to usurp the scepter which the understanding should ever coolly wield appears less wild. Notice the argument here. I'm not trying to get rid of love. I'm not trying to tell women to get rid of love. I'm not trying to tell women to stop loving. But I am saying that we should probably control our love. And this is, you know, not something that anyone has said that is new. Spinoza was literally saying the exact same thing in our last, last lesson. You know, Plato and Aristotle were very much stressing that love should be reserved for, you know, the people who deserve it. That it shouldn't just be like a wild, overtaking passion that leads us into madness. Um, it is not, you know, the desperate love of Dante. It should be the more restrained love of Cicero. That's kind of what Wollstonecraft is suggesting here. But importantly... As much as this is, in fact, good advice, and it would be good advice when offered to a man, for some reason, this is not the advice that women are receiving. Youth is the season for love in both sexes, but in those days of thoughtless enjoyment, provision should be made for the more important years of life, when reflection takes place of sensation. But Rousseau, and most of the male writers who have followed his steps, have warmly inculcated that the whole tendency of female education ought to be directed to one point, to render them pleasing. Let me reason with the supporters of this opinion, who have any knowledge of human nature, do they imagine that marriage can eradicate the habitude of life? The woman who has only been taught to please will soon find that her charms are oblique sunbeams, and that they cannot have much effect on her husband's heart when they are seen every day, when the summer is past and gone. Will she then have sufficient native energy to look into herself for comfort and cultivate her dormant faculties? Or is it not more rational to expect that she will try to please other men, and in the emotions raised by the expectation of new conquests, endeavor to forget the mortification her love or pride has received? When the husband ceases to be a lover, and the time will inevitably come, her desire of pleasing will then grow languid, or become a spring of bitterness, and love, perhaps the most evanescent of all passions, gives way to jealousy or vanity. If the only tool a woman has to attract a mate, to attract a lover, to attract a partner in her life, 
is her beauty and her attractiveness, the way that Rousseau and all these other male writers have been suggesting. If the entire virtue that a woman is supposed to cultivate is to be innocent, to be pure, to be, you know, chaste and modest, then what the hell do they expect this woman to do when she actually gets married? Chastity, yes, probably be faithful to your husband, but for some reason they're not telling the husband to be chaste. That doesn't seem to be a huge priority here. I wonder why. But importantly, the woman is supposed to be chaste, and the man will definitely continue to appreciate her until the bloom of love is gone, but importantly, once that bloom passes, once her beauty fades, or once his interest in her beauty fades, she's got nothing. That was all she had. They gave her one tool, one weapon, and she used it. And now it's gone. Now what? What is she supposed to do but use the weapon again to entice another male admirer, to entice another male lover? Remember, this is all she knows how to do. If her lover has gone cold on her because her passions have been exhausted, or rather his have been exhausted, and if she can't entice him with, you know, the other things that usually human beings bond over, like rational argument, like common interests, like any of the other things that people do together, if the only thing that a woman can do is attract and please people, well, yeah, naturally she's going to attract and please somebody else. Can you really blame her for coquettishness? When that is the case, can you really blame her for adultery when this is literally the only skill she has? This is what we are critiquing here. Like, everything that Rousseau is saying to Emile and Sophie, everything that Julie is sort of saying about, like, how, you know, how her Abelard is supposed to love her, like, all of this falls into this trap and sticks women in this position where they cannot get out, where they do not have some alternative to just coming up with more intrigues, coming up with more romances. So we get her accusation to Dr. Gregory further down on page three. He advises them to cultivate a fondness for dress, because a fondness for dress, he asserts, is natural to them. I.e., dress in fine clothes, like buy lots of clothes, look, look nice. And he's even going so far as to say that is the natural state of women in that classically poor anthropological attitude that very much informed Rousseau's argument about the state of nature. Women like dressing up, so go dress up! That's Gregory's solution. And Wallstromcraft responds, I am unable to comprehend what either he or Rousseau mean when they frequently use this indefinite term. If they told us that in a pre-existent state the soul was fond of dress, and brought this inclination with it into a new body, I should listen to them with a half-smile, as I often do when I hear a rant about innate elegance. But if he only meant to say that the exercise of the faculties will produce this fondness, I deny it. It is not natural, but arises, like false ambition in men, from a love of power. Noble Wollstonecraft is, is saying here, No, women do not naturally like dressing up. They like dressing up because they know that it gives them power, that it gives them an an edge over the men in their lives, that it gives them authority over other more poorly dressed women. This is their one way of getting ahead in the world. Naturally, they're going to cultivate a fondness for it because that's the only kind of power they can exert over their lives. Dress isn't something natural to women, or at least Wollstonecraft doesn't see any argument why it should be. Like she says, I listen to them with a half smile as I do when I hear a rant about innate elegance. It's ambiguity. It's rhetorical morality. It's garbage. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make any sense. 
this state of nature that Rousseau and Gregory and company all keep referring to is so ill-defined and so poorly described and so poorly justified that Wollstonecraft sees no sense in it. Get rid of it. No, women do not naturally love dressing up. What they naturally love is having authority, having power, being able to control their own lives. You know, like all rational beings. Too bad that's the only way they have to express that rationality, to express that desire for power. And notice, too, that she compares it to false ambition in men. Just love of power. Like, she isn't on board with this. You know, she, she would not practice this. She recognizes the necessity of it for women. She, she kind of forgives them by recognizing that, like, this is, you know, a thing that they, this is the only thing that they can do, and therefore she's not going to blame them for doing it. But at the same time, she recognizes it doesn't mean anything. It's just false ambition. It's just an effort to secure their own security for the sake of their security. And that's it. Like, it's not to some higher agenda. It's not to some higher purpose. Women don't have higher purposes. This is the only purpose they are allowed. Dr. Gregory goes much further. He actually recommends dissimulation and advises an innocent girl to give the lie to her feelings and not dance with spirit when gaiety of heart would make her feel eloquent without making her gestures immodest. In the name of truth and common sense, why should not one woman acknowledge that she can take more exercise than another, or in other words, that she has a sound constitution? And why to damp innocent vivacity? Is she darkly to be told that men will draw conclusions which she little thinks of? Let the libertine draw what inference he pleases, but I hope that no sensible mother will restrain the natural frankness of youth by instilling such indecent cautions. This is remarkably similar to what we are frequently talking about in the 21st century as far as the whole, like, how does feminism, how should men and women sort of interact with each other. Like, that whole discussion about, you know, women shouldn't be advised to dress modestly, men should keep their goddamn hands to themselves, very much aligns with what Wollstonecraft is saying here. Wollstonecraft is saying, you know, if a little girl wants to dance with excitement, if she wants to behave immodestly, if she wants to, you know, sing or get excited about something, the usual response is, stop that. You're going to give them ideas. Or stop that. You're going to make them think that, like, you're, you're feeble-minded or, or you're simple in some way. And Wollstonecraft is like, why? Why would you tell girls to lie, to couch their feelings, to protect themselves from speaking the truth because somehow the truth makes them worse? Like, it's somehow bad for a woman to like a man, even though you are telling them this is the only thing that they have in their lives? Like, how does this make sense? How are we supposed to make sense out of it? How are we, as women, supposed to take this advice and turn it into something sensible? How are we supposed to live like this? This doesn't make sense. And why is it only for women? Why is it only women who have to practice these, quote, virtues of innocence and modesty, whereas men can just say whatever they damn well please, and everyone's like, hmm, good for you, way to speak your mind. Like, it doesn't make sense. She's willing to admit that there are differences between men and women. She is absolutely going to stress, you know, women has, have a weaker frame, or women maybe even do have, like, a different set of abilities than men do. Like, she's willing to grant that that could very well be the place. But importantly, she's going to stress, even if it is, even if it is true, then we should still be aspiring to the same goals, right? There's only one set of virtues. 
And love, as much as this is this important component of, you know, all human life, how is it that it is the only component of human life for 50% of the population, while it is just one component of many for the rest? Why is it that we restrict women to the acts of love and the pursuit of love and the sort of conquests of love, while men, they can also fall in love, but, you know, that's not like, that's, that's not what they're really into. Like, sure, they do it, but, you know, whatever. It's not a huge deal. Notice on page five in our reading, the third paragraph down, love, the common passion in which chance and sensation take place of choice and reason, is in some degree felt by the mass of mankind. For it is not necessary to speak at present of the emotions that rise above or sink below love. This passion, naturally increased by suspense and difficulties, draws the mind out of its accustomed state and exalts the affections. But the security of marriage, allowing the fever of love to subside, a healthy temperature is thought insipid. Only by those who have not sufficient intellect to substitute the calm tenderness of friendship, the confidence of respect, instead of blind admiration and the sensual emotions of fondness. This is, must be, the course of nature. Friendship or indifference inevitably succeeds love, and this constitution seems perfectly to harmonize with the system of government which prevails in the moral world. Passions are spurs to action and open the mind, but they sink into mere appetites, become a personal momentary gratification when the object is gained, and the satisfied mind rests in enjoyment. The man who had some virtue whilst he was struggling for a crown often becomes a voluptuous tyrant when it graces his brow, and when the lover is not lost in the husband, the dotard, a prey to childish caprices and fond jealousies, neglects the serious duties of life, and the caresses which should excite confidence in his children are lavished on the overgrown child, his wife. Again, love is something we all experience here. It is something we all feel. And there is, you know, a great deal of importance to be placed on love, but love is fired by passion and inevitably sinks into something else, either friendship or nothing. And if women are not equipped to be good friends to their husbands, they will naturally be equipped to be disposable to their husbands. If they do not have the training to become a good match, a proper companion, just as Milton was talking about it in the, that letter to on marriage and divorce, then they're necessarily going to become disposable. They're necessarily going to look for other outlets for their, their behavior, for their, their interests, and they're necessarily going to cheat on their men. And their men are going to cheat on them because there's no satisfaction. It is all in the chase. Like, love in its entirety in the 18th century exists only as a manifestation of that chase. The only reason it's desirable, the only reason that it's fun, the only reason it's engaging, the only reason we want it is so we can get to that marriage point, and then what? And then there's nothing. There's no struggle, there's no desire, there's no passion, there's no excitement. It's just... Get together, get to the marriage point, and then bam, once you're there, good, now you're done. Congratulations. Ha go live happily ever after. Enjoy. But there's no instruction for that. There's no guidance for that. It's all about the achievement and no recognition that love endures afterwards. One of the things that I want to stress about both Rousseau and Wollstonecraft is that they both have a very humanistic, a very realistic attitude towards love. Like Many of our writers have sort of insinuated, but none of them have fully articulated at this point. They recognize love as something that takes control of us, as something that is human-centric. They deny, for the most part, its transcendental value. Like, neither of them are doing the Dante thing, although Rousseau definitely tends towards that courtly love Dante thing. 
Both of them, however, recognize that, you know, the passions cool and the passions heat up. The passions move us around, but they also cool after a while. They will not control us for the duration of our marriage. They recognize that love, as a feeling, as a passion, governs us only for a little while and then gives way to something else. So for Rousseau, the goal is then cultivate that passion. Make sure that it never dies. Keep stringing your husband along, Sophie. Keep making sure that he doesn't go too far, Julie. Keep making this romance alive by carefully partitioning, by carefully doling out your emotions. The goal for women, according to Rousseau, is for them to control their husbands through romance. Wollstonecraft responds, no. You cannot turn the chase into a marriage. That is not how human beings work, and it's certainly not what you should expect from women. Women have virtue. Women should be able to pursue virtue. You cannot tell women, go be liars, go be manipulators, go be dissemblers, go be cunning, while you're telling men to be honest and true and faithful and so on. That's not how that's supposed to work. You can't have two separate virtues for two separate people. On the one hand, this is humanism. This is absolutely a product of modernism. This is absolutely the sort of logical endpoint to, you know, Michelangelo and Raphael and da Vinci all painting their various uh, expertly created portraits of the human body, of, you know, the way that nature interacts with us. They're very interested in the sort of progress of love, the progress of nature under its own steam against the idealists like Spinoza and more in line with the thoughts of guys like Montaigne, just trying to appreciate these phenomena for what they are. But at the same time, you'll notice two distinct threads that are coming through in both Rousseau and Wollstonecraft that are going to have significant influences going forward. On the one hand, we have Rousseau's tendency towards romance, the romanticization of women, the idealization of women, in that same strain as Dante, in that same strain as the courtly lovers from before. There is this idea that for all of, you know, Enlightenment's emphasis on rationality, on the sort of utopian ideal, on civilization, and on science, human beings need an outlet in nature. Whether it's the state of nature that Rousseau is describing and sort of celebrating in his various writings, or whether it's nature in the sense of, like, trees and growing things as contrasted with, you know, the gross very unhygienic, very crowded and ugly urban environments that are increasingly cropping up around Europe. But on the other hand, we also have Wollstonecraft pushing back against this, you know, idealization of women and instead emphasizing, again, this humanism, this let's treat women as human beings. Let us not turn them into idols or ideals. Let us be honest about who we are and let us be companions to one another. Let us stop philosophizing our ways to this nonsense, and let's instead call a spade a spade. Let's instead talk about what women actually are, what a human being actually is, and let's talk about love, not in the context of, you know, it comes and it goes, but rather in terms of what it turns into. Both of these writers are saying that love disappears. Against Plato, against Aristotle, and against Dante to some degree. The trick is Rousseau artificially makes it endure. Wollstonecraft is willing to just throw it out. Like, okay, love passes, then what? Let's talk about that. In the next lecture, everything is going to change. 
the 19th century is going to very much reject Enlightenment philosophy in all of its forms and modern philosophy in all of its forms. Gone will be all of these discussions of, you know, scientific understanding of human behavior. Gone will be, you know, Rousseau, like, picking at the rationality of human beings and counseling women to be, ex like, especially civilized. We're going to change direction again. There is probably no single more dramatic change in this class at this point than Romanticism. Um, and I would be hard-pressed to think of a change more dramatic and more sudden in the history of the Western philosophy of love and friendship. So we're going to talk about Goethe, we're going to talk about some more literature, just as we talked about with Dante uh, when we were talking about modernism, and we're going to look at the responses there. How does philosophy respond to this radical shift in the way that love, friendship, and human relationships are understood? So keep that in mind, and I look forward to talking about it with you soon.